Chapters nine and ten of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Ortsi. Chapter nine. Jealousy. At the door of her home, Blakeney parted from Anne Mie with all the courtesy with which he would have bade adieu to the greatest lady in his own land. Anne Mie let herself into the house with her own latch key. She closed the heavy door noiselessly, then glided upstairs like a quaint little ghost. But on the landing above, she met Paul Desrelade. He had just come out of his room and was still fully dressed. "'Anne Mie!' he said, with such an obvious cry of pleasure, that the young girl, with beating heart, paused a moment on the top of the stairs, as if hoping to hear that cry again, feeling that indeed he was glad to see her, had been uneasy because of her long absence. "'Have I made you anxious?' she asked at last. "'Anxious!' he exclaimed. "'Little one, I have hardly lived this last hour, since I realized that you had gone out so late as this, and all alone.' "'How did you know?' Mademoiselle de Marny knocked at my door an hour ago. She had gone to your room to see you, and not finding you there, she searched the house for you, and finally, in her anxiety, came to me. We did not dare to tell my mother. I won't ask where you have been, Anne but another time, remember, little one, that the streets of Paris are not safe, and that those who love you suffer deeply, when they know you to be in peril. Those who love me, murmured the girl under her breath, could you not have asked me to come with you? No, I wanted to be alone. These streets were quite safe, and I wanted to speak with Sir Percy Blakeney. With Blakeney? he exclaimed in boundless astonishment. Why, what in the world did you want to say to him? The girl, so unaccustomed to lying, had blurted out the truth, almost against her will. I thought he could help me, as I was much perturbed and restless. You went to him sooner than to me, said Desrelade in a tone of gentle reproach, and still puzzled at this extraordinary action on the part of the girl, usually so shy and reserved. My anxiety was about you, and you would have mocked me for it. Indeed, I should never mock you, Anne Mie, but why should you be anxious about me? Because I see you wandering blindly on the brink of a great danger, and because I see you confiding in those whom you had best mistrust. He frowned a little, and bit his lip to check the rough word that was on the tip of his tongue. Is Sir Percy Blakeney one of those whom I had best mistrust? he said lightly. No, she answered curtly. Then, dear, there is no cause for unrest. He is the only one of my friends whom you have not known intimately. All those who are around me now, you know that you can trust and that you can love, he added earnestly and significantly. He took her hand. It was trembling with obvious suppressed agitation. She knew that he had guessed what was passing in her mind, and now was deeply ashamed of what she had done. She had been tortured with jealousy for the past three weeks, but at least she had suffered quite alone. On one had been allowed to touch that wound— which, more often than not, excites derision rather than pity. Now, by her own actions, two men knew her secret. Both were kind and sympathetic, but Desrelade resented her imputations, and Blakeney had been unable to help her. A wave of morbid introspection swept over her soul. She realized in a moment how petty and base had been her thoughts, and how purposeless her actions. She would have given her life at this moment to eradicate from Desrelade's mind the knowledge of her own jealousy. She hoped that at least he had not guessed her love. She tried to read his thoughts, but in the dark passage only dimly lighted by the candles in Desrelade's room beyond, she could not see the expression of his face, but the hand which held hers was warm and tender. She felt herself pitied and blushed at the thought. With a hasty good night she fled down the passage and locked herself in her room, alone with her own thoughts at last. CHAPTER X. DENUNCIATION But what of Juliette? What of this wild, passionate, romantic creature tortured by a titanic conflict? She, but a girl, scarcely yet a woman, 
torn by the greatest antagonistic powers that ever fought for a human soul. On the one side duty, tradition, her dead brother, her father, above all her religion and the oath she had sworn before God, on the other justice and honour, a case of right and wrong, honesty and pity. How she fought with these powers now! She fought with them, struggled with them on her knees. She tried to crush memory, tried to forget that awful midnight scene ten years ago, her brother's dead body, her father's avenging hand holding her down, as he begged her to do that which he was too feeble, too old to accomplish. His words rang in her ears from across that long vista of the past. "'Before the face of Almighty God, who sees and hears me, I swear.' And she had repeated those words loudly and of her own free will, with her hand resting on her brother's breast, and God himself looking down upon her, for she had called upon him to listen. "'I swear that I will seek out Paul de Roulade, and in any manner which God may dictate to me encompass his death, his ruin, or dishonour in revenge for my brother's death. May my brother's soul remain in torment until the final judgment day if I should break my oath, but may it rest in eternal peace, the day on which his death is fitly avenged.' Almost it seemed to her as if father and brother were standing by her side, as she knelt and prayed. Oh, how she prayed! In many ways she was an only child. All her years had been passed in confinement, either beside her dying father, or later between the four walls of the Ursuline convent, and during those years her soul had been fed on a contemplative, ecstatic religion, a kind of sanctified superstition, which she would have deemed sacrilege to combat. Her first step into womanhood was taken with that oath upon her lips— since then, with a stoical sense of duty, she had lashed herself into a daily, hourly remembrance of the great mission imposed upon her. To have neglected it would have been, to her, equal to denying God. But she had vague ideas of the doctrinal side of religion. Purgatory, to her, was merely a word, but a word representing a real spiritual state, one of expectancy, of restlessness, of sorrow. And vaguely, yet determinedly, she believed that her brother's soul suffered, because she had been too weak to fulfil her oath. The church had not come to her rescue. The ministers of her religion were scattered to the four corners of the besieged, agonizing France. She had no one to help her, no one to comfort her. That very peaceful, contemplative life which she had led in the convent only served to enhance her feeling of the solemnity of her mission. It was true, it was inevitable, because it was so hard to the few who throughout those troublous times had kept a feeling of veneration for their religion this religion had become one of abnegation and martyrdom a spirit of uncompromising jansenism seemed to call forth sacrifices and renunciation whereas the happy-go-lucky catholicism of the past century had only suggested an easy flowered path to a comfortable well-upholstered heaven the harder the task seemed which was set before her the more real it became to juliette God, she firmly believed, had at last, after ten years, shown her the way to wreak vengeance upon her brother's murderer. He had brought her to this house, caused her to see and hear part of the conversation between Blakeney and Deroulade, and this at the moment of all others, when even the semblance of a conspiracy against the Republic would bring the one inevitable result in his train, disgrace first, the hasty mock trial, the hall of justice, and the guillotine. She tried not to hate Deroulade. She wished to judge him coldly and impartially, or rather to indict him before the throne of God, and to punish him for the crime he had committed ten years ago. Her personal feelings must remain out of the question. Had Charlotte Corday considered her own sensibilities, when with her own hand she put an end to Marat? Juliette remained on her knees for hours. She heard Anne Mier come home, and Deroulade's voice of welcome on the landing. This was perhaps the most bitter moment of this awful soul-conflict, 
for it brought to her mind the remembrance of those others who would suffer too, and who were innocent, Madame Desrelaides and poor crippled Anne Mier. They had done no wrong, and yet how heavily would they be punished! And then the saner judgment, the human material code of ethics, gained for a while the upper hand. Juliette would rise from her knees, dry her eyes, prepare quietly to go to bed, and to forget all about the awful, relentless fate which dragged her to the fulfilment of its will, and then sink back, broken-hearted, murmuring impassioned prayers for forgiveness to her father, her brother, her God. The soul was young and ardent, and it fought for abnegation, martyrdom, and stern duty. The body was childlike, and it fought for peace, contentment, and quiet reason. The rational body was conquered by the passionate, powerful soul. Blame not the child, for in herself she was innocent. She was but another of the many victims of this cruel, mad, hysterical time, that spirit of relentless tyranny, forcing its doctrines upon the weak. With the first break of dawn, Juliette at last finally rose from her knees, bathed her burning eyes and head, tidied her hair and dress, then she sat down at the table and began to write. She was a transformed being now, no longer a child, essentially a woman, a Joan of Arc with a mission, a Charlotte Corday going to martyrdom, a human, suffering, erring soul, committing a great crime for the sake of an idea. She wrote out carefully and with a steady hand the denunciation of Citizen Deputy Desrelaides, which has become an historical document, and is preserved in the Chronicles of France. You have all seen it at the Musée Carnavalet, in its glass case, its yellow paper and faded ink revealing nothing of the sole conflict of which it was the culminating victory. The cramped, somewhat schoolgirlish writing is the mute, pathetic witness of one of the saddest tragedies that era of sorrow and crime has ever known. To the representatives of the people now sitting in assembly at the National Convention. You trust and believe in the representative of the people, Citizen Deputy Paul Desrelaides. He is false and a traitor to the Republic. He is planning and hopes to effect the release of Cidavant Marie Antoinette, widow of the traitor Louis Capet. Haste, you representatives of the people, proofs of his assertion, papers and plans are still in the house of the Citizen Deputy Desrelaides. The statement is made by one who knows. The 23rd Fructidor when her letter was written she read it through carefully made the one or two little corrections which are still visible in the document then folded her missive hid it within the folds of her kerchief and wrapping a dark cloak and hood round her she slipped noiselessly out of the room the house was all quiet and still she shuddered a little as the cool morning air fanned her hot cheeks it seemed like the breath of ghosts she ran quickly down the stairs and as rapidly as she could pushed back the heavy bolts of the front door and slipped out into the street Already the city was beginning to stir. There was no time for sleep, when so much had to be done for the safety of the threatened Republic. As Juliet turned her steps toward the river, she met the crowd of workmen whom France was employing for her defense. Behind her, in the Luxembourg Gardens, and all along the opposite bank of the river, the furnaces were already ablaze, and the smiths at work forging the guns. At every step now, Juliet came across the great placards, pinned to the tall gallows-shaped posts which proclaim to every passing citizen that the people of france are up and in arms right across the place de l'institut a procession of market cars laden with vegetables and a little fruit winds its way slowly toward the centre of town they each carry tiny tricolour flags with a pike and cap of liberty surmounting the flagstaff they are good patriots the market gardeners who come in daily to feed the starving mob of paris with the few handfuls of watery potatoes and miserable vermin-eaten cabbages which that fraternal revolution still allows them to grow without hindrance every one seems busy with their work thus early in the morning the business of killing does not begin until later in the day 
for the moment Juliet can get along quite unmolested. The women and children, mostly hurrying on towards the vast encampments in the Tuileries, where lint and bandages and coats for the soldiers are manufactured all the day. The walls of all the houses bear the great patriotic device, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, Sinon la Mort. Others are more political in the proclamation, La République une et indivisible. But on the walls of the Louvre, of the great palace of William Kings, where the Roy Lille held his court, and flirted with the prettiest women in France, where the new and great republic has affixed its final mandate. A great poster glued to the wall bears the words, La loi concerning les suspects. Below the poster is a huge wooden box with a slit at the top. This is the latest invention for securing the safety of this one and indivisible republic. Henceforth everyone becomes a traitor at one word of denunciation from an idler or an enemy, and, as in the most tyrannical days of the Spanish Inquisition, one half of the nation was set to spy upon the other. That wooden box, with its slit, is put there ready to receive denunciations from one hand against another. Had Juliet paused but for the fraction of a second, had she stopped to read the placard setting forth this odious law, had she only reflected, then she would even now have turned back, and fled from that gruesome box of infamies, as she would from a dangerous and noisome reptile, or from the pestilence. But her long vigil, her prayers, her ecstatic visions of heroic martyrs, had now completely numbed her faculties. Her vitality, her sensibilities were gone. She had become an automaton gliding to her doom, without a thought or a tremor. She drew the letter from her bosom, and with a steady hand dropped it into the box. The irreclaimable had now occurred. Nothing she could henceforth say or do, no prayers or agonized vigils, no miracles even, could undo her action or save Paul de Relade from trial and guillotine. One or two groups of people hurrying to their work had seen her drop the letter into the box. A couple of small children paused, finger in mouth, gazing at her with inane curiosity. One woman uttered a coarse jest, all of them shrugged their shoulders, and passed on, on their way. Those who habitually crossed the spot were used to such sights. That wooden box, with its mouth-like slit, was an insatiable monster that was constantly fed, yet was still gaping for more. Having done the deed, Juliet turned, and as rapidly as she had come, so she went back to her temporary home. A home no more now. She must leave it at once, to-day, if possible. This much she knew, that she no longer could touch the bread of the man she had betrayed. She would not appear at breakfast. She could plead a headache, and in the afternoon Patronelle should pack her things. She turned into a little shop close by, and asked for a glass of milk and a bit of bread. The woman who served her eyed her with some curiosity, for Juliet just now looked almost out of her mind. She had not yet begun to think, and she had ceased to suffer. Both would come presently, and with them the memory of this last irretrievable hour, and a just estimate of what she had done. End of chapters 9 and 10